All right. Kids are head to the back to uh, learn on their level. You turn to Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles. Colossians chapter 1. We come to the end of the first chapter of Colossians. Paul's really kind of still in the introduction of the letter. He hasn't quite gotten to the main purpose that he's writing and, and begin to deal with that main purpose. We're going to get to that next week in chapter 2. Um, but so far we've seen him thank God for the evidence of the gospel that he sees in these believers in Colossae. We see him praying for them. This is what I desire to see happen in you. And Paul, throughout this section, is he hasn't dealt with the main reason he's writing, the false teachers, but he's, he's, he's laying the foundation for how he's going to deal with them. And the, the, the way he's going to deal with them is to make much of Christ. So they're questioning these believers, if Jesus is enough, you need some, some, something else besides Jesus, in addition to Jesus, for full spiritual experience. And Paul, in the middle of the chapter, paints the spotlight as clear as any place in Scripture on Jesus to say, here is Jesus, how can you say He's not enough? He's the supreme being in all of the universe who's ever walked the face of the earth, who's ever existed, so that He might be preeminent in everything. And so how can you say He's not enough when you realize who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and then Paul transitioned from this big spotlight, high view of Christ, one of the highest in Scripture, to, to a couple weeks ago we looked at how that applied to them. So, so you who were hostile in mind, alienated from God, doing evil deeds, you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You're now experiencing that. And now Paul is going to turn the attention from the, from the church to himself. He makes that transition at the end of verse 23. So let's pick up there and finish out the chapter where he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of His energy that He powerfully works within me. Father, Your Word is good and we're so gracious, that so, so grateful of Your grace uh, that, that has poured that out on us, that allows us to sit here thousands of years later and hold in our hands the very words of God. We thank you for that. We, we pray that, that our hearts and minds would engage right now. All of us, hearts, minds, wills, emotion, would fully engage with the Word of God so that your Spirit and your Word can come and transform us and change us and make us more and more the people you've created us to be, that you've called us to be, that you long for us to be. God, we thank you that that work is going on and is going to continue. We thank you for the sureness that it's going to be finished because whatever you begin in us, you're going to complete it. Um, so Father, help us to see today our part in that. Sins we need to repent of. Truths and beliefs that we need to, to put our faith in. 
hopes and promises that we need to rest on. And most of all, Father, we pray you would bear fruit through us in such a way that you get the glory. Be with the kids in the back. Father, may they learn, may they see the beauty, the wonder, the glory of Christ even at their age. And that their hearts would begin to long for Him and to know Him and to love Him. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to avoid a a very common mistake that happens when you get up close to somebody in Scripture and you begin to see just somebody who's devoted and somebody who has a heart for God and does these amazing things like suffering for Christ. The, the, The mistake we want to avoid is to make much of that person. To, to think, man, I wish I was like Paul. I wish I had his gifts, his abilities, his desires, his devotions. I wish I could do the things that Paul did. And Paul would be the first to say, don't do that. Don't, don't take the men and women of, women of Scripture and turn them into some kind of spiritualized version of the Avengers, like Christian superheroes, and you just wish you could be like that superhero. Paul would say, and the Bible would say, and, and I'm saying, see beyond Paul to Christ. All right, see Christ who makes all things possible through Paul. And the primary reason Paul knew this and Paul would say this is because Paul knew who he was. Paul knew his background. He knew his story. He knew his life. Paul, born a Jew, also born a Roman citizen. Among the Jews, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews in his own words. Highly esteemed among the Jews because of his tribe and his heritage. Among The Gentiles, he was highly esteemed because he was born a Roman citizen. He had to buy it or earn his citizenship. He got it by birth. So just from his birth, he had accomplished nothing. He was highly esteemed among the people. Then he goes on through his life, unlike the disciples who at an early age didn't measure up intellectually to, to go into the rabbinical schools, so they became fishermen and tax collectors and other jobs that, that most people had to do. Paul was someone who measured up intellectually. And so Paul is absorbed into these rabbinical schools where he's taught academically the Bible. He sits at the feet of a well-known teacher, Gamaliel, we learn in the book of Acts. Paul establishes himself. He sets himself apart as a Pharisee among Pharisees, not just because of his knowledge of the Scripture, but his ability to obey it and carry it out. He said, as a Pharisee, I was blameless. You could find no fault in me as a Pharisee. Now, I know that when we hear the word Pharisee, you think hypocrite, scum of the Bible, people that Jesus confronted all the time. And, and there's some truth to that, but among the people in that day, no one was more respected than the Pharisees. They did it better than anybody else. And this is who Paul was. He was a guy, uh, Pharisees were, were men who often would have large portions of the Old Testament memorized. They knew the Scriptures unlike anybody else. They could tell you what the Scriptures meant, how you're supposed to apply the Scripture in all these situations. So highly esteemed, follower of God, devoted to God, fully highly esteemed by the people. He was a leader among the Pharisees. And when this new sect came around claiming to follow this Nazarene carpenter who had been crucified like a criminal shamefully, and they're saying that he rose from the dead and we're we're proclaiming him throughout the city, causing this uproar, Paul became one of the leaders to go and stop and end this movement. This has got to be put to an end. This is not good for our people. And so we see Paul out front, one of the key leaders, tracking down these followers of Jesus, hunting them down, arresting them, even being part of their execution. It's all done in the name of devotion to God. At least God as Paul understood him. So it was Paul, known at the time as Saul, standing by Stephen as he was stoned to death by the Jews for what they call blasphemy. 
It was Paul who saw Stephen stare up into the heavens and see Jesus and say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It was Paul who would go get the arrest warrants and get a group of men armed to go to another small town to find more followers of the way to have them arrested and tortured and prosecuted and maybe even executed if they won't stop talking about Jesus. So you don't ever forget that Paul at one time was one of God's and the church's greatest enemies. I mean, we have ISIS today over the Middle East calling out Christians and finding people who are Christians and cutting their heads off just because they're Christians. Paul would have been one of the leaders of ISIS. Doing it all in the name of their God. Or the head of other groups who have tried to exterminate and wipe out God's people. And one day on this way to the town of Damascus, Paul was confronted just like a punch to the soul by this man Jesus. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people that as Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And from that day on, everything changed. One of the people of God's greatest enemies, the peop- someone they all feared, whose name, when you spoke the name Saul, brought fear in the hearts of God's people. From that day on, everything changed. It was such a dramatic transformation that if you remember in the book of Acts, if you ever read the book of Acts, that immediately they wouldn't let him in. Like, this guy, you, you, you want to tell us that this guy's changed? You all know who this guy is? You know what this guy's been doing? And now we're supposed to believe that he's preaching the same message we're preaching? Imagine today that the next great servant of God, the next great missionary or pastor or whoever, disciple maker, right now is killing and beheading Christians somewhere around the world. That's Paul. That's who Paul is. And so you see why in verse 23, he says he became a minister, passive. Verse 25, he became a minister, passive. It was done to him. He received it. He didn't go looking for this calling. He didn't go looking for this position. This was something where Jesus came looking for him, transformed him radically, called him and dwelt him and then began to use him to plant churches all over the world. And so don't make much of Paul, make much of Jesus. Because Jesus has created us and called us to carry out the ministry like Paul did. So just as he called and created Paul, so he calls and creates us. So we see in Paul that because of Christ first, we suffer with joy. Because of Christ, we suffer with joy. We see it in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, the church. So let's, let's deal with the obvious, one of the more difficult verses in this book. Paul is saying, it looks like Paul is saying something is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, and somehow Paul's sufferings make up for what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Just initially reading, you're like, is that, is that what Paul's saying? Like you're, you're studying the Bible on your own, you're, you're, you're reading the Bible with a good cup of coffee, you're a notebook, you're taking notes, you're trying to understand this book of Colossians, and you come across this verse... And it seems to say that Paul is saying that Christ's afflictions were not enough. I'm finishing what he started. So so what do you do with that? So immediately you go online and enroll in a seminary because you've got to go to seminary to understand the Bible, right? Or you Google, what does Colossians 1.24 mean? Or maybe you uh, turn on television to find some religious television because those guys have all the answers and they're going to give you a good understanding of what Colossians 1.24 means. Or maybe you just grab your magic eight ball and just begin to ask questions and get whatever answers your magic eight ball gives you. Um, 
obviously know to all of the above. You stop and pray. Father, I'm reading this passage and it seems to be saying something that I know is contradictory to what I know about Christianity, what I know about other scriptures. I don't understand what it means, but Father, I know it doesn't mean this. And Father, you wrote the scriptures. Your spirit lives in me, the author of scriptures through human instruments. So help me to understand. And you just make a note in your notebook. Like, I don't know what verse 24 means. It can't possibly mean this, can it? And begin to share it in your DNA groups, your your discipling groups that we have, men with men, women with women, or share it in your missional community, or share it with some other brothers or sisters and say, look, I'm trying to figure this verse out. What do y'all think? And so in your own study of the Word, when you come across passages that seem to be saying things contrary to court doctrine, it, it is enough just to say, well, it can't mean these things because that contradicts doctrines that I know exist. I don't know what it means, but I know it doesn't mean this. It's okay to stay there. You don't have to have every answer, every question answered. And just meditate on it and pray on it and, and seek the body of Christ to help you to understand those scriptures. Now if you were studying through Colossians, you'd have already seen the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice in verses 19 through 20. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. It didn't say making some peace by the blood of His cross. Almost making peace by the blood of His cross. No, it it says reconciliation is done. Peace is done. Complete when He died on the cross. Jesus Himself said it's finished. And you're going to go on to read in chapter 2, verse 15, by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us, verse 14 and 15, the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Let's say He somewhat triumphed. He did part of it. Paul had to finish it. It's done. Complete. So just just common sense. It doesn't make sense to think that there could possibly be anything lacking in the suffering of Christ that somehow any of us could do anything to add to that. That somehow we could be good enough or we could pay... Uh, some, some price, or we could be sorrow or shamed enough in order to add something to what Christ has done. Christ has done it. It's complete. It is finished. The victory was won on the cross. The resurrection didn't even add to the victory. It confirmed the victory, proved that the victory was complete, that He was who He said He was, and He did what He said He did. That is who we have and what we have in Christ. Now, beyond that, you could dig into some study Bibles and commentaries and language studies and learn more about why that's not the correct interpretation, that Christ's afflictions were lacking. For instance, the word used there for afflictions is never used anywhere in the New Testament in reference to the cross. It's a completely different word in the original language of the New Testament. It's not the same thing as the substitutionary, vicarious suffering and sacrifice that Christ endured on our behalf. You could also study and discover that for Paul, a man who inflicted so much suffering on others before he came to Christ, for Paul the very beginning of his ministry, he learned and would find out from Ananias that he would have a ministry of suffering. So you know the story of Paul. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. Ananias, a servant of Christ, has to go and get Paul and bring him to his house and disciple him and, and give him time to, to heal up from the being blinded and then eventually baptize him. And so Ananias is a little skittish about this. Like, you want me to bring that guy in my house? And so Jesus tells Ananias in Acts chapter 9, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul saw his suffering not making up for something lacking in Christ, but coming because of his identification, identification with Christ, and in some way his suffering would benefit the church. We're all called to suffer as Christians. We all should expect persecution because we identify with Christ. It marked Paul's ministry in a very unique way. A very unique way. It identified him. And in some way, Paul believed that his suffering would benefit the church like Christ's suffering benefited the church. Not in a saving way, but in maybe he would absorb some suffering that the church would then not have to absorb. It's a little clearer in a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7-12. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We see throughout the New Testament that we're going to suffer until our King returns. And there's, there's two kinds of suffering that we're going to experience. We're going to experience suffering because we identify with Christ. And the enemy of Christ is constantly working in, through spiritual warfare, through, through different things to attack the people of God. So we should expect suffering because we identify with Christ and the enemy of the world is wanting to crush and kill and destroy everything that has to do with Christ. But we also will expect suffering because we live in a sin-cursed world where there is suffering. And we're just caught up in it like everybody else. We're not exempt from it because we know Christ. So, so first, the suffering that we experience because we identify with Christ. Jesus told his servants and uh, his followers in John fifteen twenty, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Earlier in the chapter of John 15, he says, if they hate you, no, they hated me first. So the way they treated Jesus, because we identified with Jesus, we're so much like Jesus. Jesus is being, being uh, seen through the way we live our life. They're going to treat us like they treated Jesus. It's ex- absolutely to be expected. You should expect it as believers. And so the question we ask ourselves is this. Are we so identifying with Christ that we're being persecuted like Christ? Guys, it's absolutely possible to live in our culture of comfort and pleasure. It is absolutely possible to call yourself a Christian and live a life where you never experience persecution. You can do it. I mean, people are doing it all the time. You just kind of don't rock the boat. You kind of go along with the flow. You kind of fit in. You don't really ever say anything to upset anybody. You don't ever really take a stand. You just kind of go along to get along. And you can be a Christian, call yourself a Christian, and, and there are genuine believers in that crowd. And just absolutely never experience any suffering or persecution. And, and it's not possible everywhere, but in our culture, absolutely possible in the South. Absolutely possible. We're not called to be foolish martyrs. This is not a call to put yourself in a box and mail yourself to Iran and jump out of the, the box with a bunch of Bibles and start preaching the gospel. 
I just want to die for Jesus. That's not the calling that God's placed on us. I had a friend of mine, a mentor pastor, who at one time was a, a missionary in uh, Kenya, and he, he talked about that. He went over there with his family. They're willing to give his life up for the sake of Christ. He gets sick. He has to come back home. He's struggling with that. Like, God, why would you take me off the mission field? And one thing God showed him is that you were willing to go over there and die for me. Why aren't you as willing to come here and live for me? And so in our context, in our culture, suffering for the sake of Christ could mean relationships with family members are broken because of the spiritual warfare that exists between family members who follow Jesus and those who don't. And there's tension. There's pain. There's hurt. It can mean tension in relationships because you're, you're not content to just nod in approval at the sin in the lives of those that you love, but you're going to fight against the sin in the lives that you love. And so you have to say things and do things that call that out. And that's like never a conversation anybody wants to have. I can't wait to point out the sin of your life. And I want you to point out the sin of my life. Or our suffering is because we live in a sin, broken, cursed world. And we sin, and other people sin, and sin exists in the world, and so we have natural disasters, and sickness, and disease, and cancer, and AIDS, and flu, and colds, and allergies, and sinus infections, and more, and more, and more, and so we suffer because we live in a broken world. It will not be like this forever. Don't believe that somehow you can be good enough, blessed enough, obedient enough, faithful enough, give enough money to help buy a $65 million private jet for a prosperity preacher. Don't think any of that is going to exempt you from suffering. We're going to suffer because we live in this world. Uh, we heard all the time when we were in the hospital with Sarah when she was born early and she was so sick. I can't believe this happened to y'all's family. You're a pastor and you're such a nice family. You're such a handsome, balding gentleman. And I can't believe this would happen to y'all. Okay, maybe not the last one. Right? And by the grace of God, we were able to say, why not us? Why do we think that we're exempt from this? Because of all those reasons. And sometimes when it was just the two of us, me and Jennifer being emotionally honest, would say, this stinks. This stinks. We, we don't want to be in this situation anymore. A call to have joy in suffering doesn't mean you can't be honest about the reality of pain and suffering. It's wrong to suggest that we shouldn't suffer because we're Christians. It's equally wrong to suppress real emotions in our suffering, Psalm 6, 6, David says in Psalms, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. How much crying do you have to do to drown your furniture with tears? This is a dude saying this. Right? And David was honest about the pain. Whatever our cause of suffering, we learn from Paul that because of Christ, we suffer with joy. How do we do that? Just hang on to that question. We're going to come back to it. Secondly, we see in Paul that because of Christ, we proclaim Him through the Word so that disciples can be matured. Verse 25, of which, talking about the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we see Paul having a grasp of this ministry as something that God initiated, not something he went looking for, but something that came and found him. It was a responsibility that he saw in terms of being a steward, so like a household manager, where you don't own everything, but you're put in charge of some things. A steward, a household manager, takes care and manages things well for the one who owns everything. And so that's us. Like this is the Crossing Church is not our church. This is Jesus' church. We as pastors, elders, we we are faithful stewards. We manage it. We run it for him the way the boss says to run it. But this is not our church. It's his. And this is the way Paul saw his ministry. This stewardship he saw it involved proclaiming the word of God fully known to the church. So the idea here is not just proclaiming the full counsel of God, so I'm preaching everything that's in the Bible. The idea is seeing the word fully known in the church. And so we proclaim the word. The word is heard. The word is understood. We explain it. And then the word is obeyed, and you see the fruits of obedience. That's the word of God fully known. If the word of God is fully known in the crossing church, that doesn't mean we know everything the Bible says or, or, or means. We have zero interest and there is zero value in an academic knowledge of, of the Bible without the fruits of obedience. None. Like if, if your heart is, like I just want to understand the Bible so I can answer everybody's questions, just stop. That's, there's no value in that without desiring to obey the Scriptures. That's the only value there is in, in, in Scripture and in, in understanding the Scriptures so you can know God, so you can love God, serve God, be devoted to God. No one in Jesus' day knew the Bible better than the Pharisees and Jesus continually crushed them because their knowledge didn't lead to worship, love, and devotion. It led to self-righteousness and arrogance and, and putting a burden on the people because they had to measure up to what the Pharisees said obedience looked like. I think we mentioned before that we want to be a body of believers that are known to being, to being Bible doers, not just Bible knowers. We want to be known as a people who do the Bible, live out the Bible, the reality of Scripture. So don't be that guy or that girl who can answer all the theological questions, win at Bible trivia, uh, do all the, the Bible quizzes correctly, but you're not experiencing the Word of God alive in you. They can tell you everything the Bible says about joy and hope and love and faith, but they're not experiencing love, joy, hope, and faith. They're not living it out. Be a Bible doer, not just a Bible knower. That is the Word of God fully known. And then Paul relates this ministry of making the Word of God fully known to proclaiming a mystery, he says there in verse 26. Favorite word of Paul Mostly used in Colossians, Ephesians. So when you hear the word mystery, don't think enigma or puzzle or um, a riddle. But think of mystery as a surprise. Something hidden previously that's now being revealed. Which is exactly what verse 26 says. Hidden for generations and now revealed to the saints. Surprise. We didn't know it, now we know it. Like when Jesus said in Matthew 22 that we're not going to be married in heaven. And nobody knew that. And all of a sudden, boom, new, new revelation, new truth. We're going to be like the angels. We're not going to be given in marriage. We're going to know each other. We're not going to be husbands and wives. 
Here Paul relates the mystery to something glorious, proclaims the Gentiles. This idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul mostly focuses in his writings on us being in Christ. Christ is the head, we are the body. But here, and you'll see this again in chapter 3, the focus is on Christ in us. Something that Jesus even understood uh, before he left his incarnate ministry. So Matthew 28, his last words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he tells them in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is right before he, he goes out of here. He leaves. He ascends into heaven. Wait, I thought you just said you're going to be with us. What does that mean? So what did Jesus mean? Well, you see in passages like John 14 through 16, you can read those chapters, his final teaching before he's arrested, the night of his arrest. He's saying over and over, I'm about to go away, and you're going to be sad, but it's going to be okay because I'm, I'm sending the helper. The helper's coming. And the helper he kept referring to, of course, was the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that, that what the church would have to learn, that when he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he's talking about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that is equivalent to having Jesus beside us. You get that? <laughs> Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is a reality for us, Jesus with us, because the Holy Spirit is in us. That's mind-blowing. It should be mind-blowing that our experience with Jesus is equivalent because of the Holy Spirit in us as having Jesus incarnate next to us. Like people say sometimes, man, I wish Jesus was still walking the face of the earth. It'd be so much easier to live the Christian life. Yeah, you know, we would have done it perfectly like the disciples did, right? But we have the very presence of God. The, the presence of God like on Mount Sinai that was so holy and awesome and mighty they couldn't touch the mountain or they would die. The presence of God that would come and dwell over the tabernacle. The presence of God that would dwell in the Holy of Holies where the high priest could only go one time of year, that same presence is now inside of you and me. We are the holy dwelling of God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth in the presence of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside of you, believer, Christian, brother, sister. God lives inside of us. You cannot meditate or think on that enough. And so you see why Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's what gives us hope. Your hope, your eyes on the finish line, a hope that transcends all circumstances is rooted in the fact that Christ dwells in you. It's a constant battle, we know this, to put our hope in something or someone other than Christ. To put our hope in circumstances working out in our favor. Things going the way we want it to go. The, these believers in Colossae were being tempted to think that they needed something other than Christ. Some other spiritual experience to be, the, to be the foundation of their hope. That Jesus is not enough. In our day, you need to have some kind of emotional experience every Sunday. And keep coming back every Sunday to have your gas tank filled. Because having this big emotional experience that's rooted mainly in singing certain songs in a certain way so you can have a tear in your eye. That's our hope. So you can have a warm fuzzy in your gut. That's your hope. And just keep coming back to get that every Sunday. But your hope isn't if we can manufacture a tear in your eye or a warm fuzzy in your gut. 
Your hope is in Christ. Resting well on the presence and reality of Christ in you. And when you leave and you don't have some guy up here screaming and yelling at you, you don't have somebody playing songs and and have your focus turned to a screen to see these words, you don't have the presence of brothers and sisters with you all the time, you leave and you go back to your, your sinning kids who are fighting in the car on the way home and bills and job and stress and sick family members and the tension of relationships and mean co-workers and aggravated neighbors and all the, the junk that we have to deal with in life. When you leave here and go back into that, you're bringing Christ with you. Christ is not here. Christ is in you. The hope of glory. You have everything you need because Christ is in you. He is our hope. And so that's why, verse 28, we proclaim Him. Like, what else? When you realize that, what else would we proclaim? What else would we preach? i got a few good ideas I think would help you out in life. We proclaim Him, Christ. There's no one or nothing else, no one else to proclaim. We do this, He tells us, with warning, admonishing, He says. So this is danger, danger, danger. Red light, red light, red light. Don't keep going down that path. We love Christ. We love each other enough to say, be careful. The path that you're on is going to destroy your soul. It's a big part of who we are is the crossing. DNA groups, missional communities, holding each other accountable. But we also teach. So instead, do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't believe this. Believe this. God gives us the ability to do this with all wisdoms. That's Wisdom is applying the truth of God to life. So it's making God's Word come alive in our lives, understanding how it applies. Our goal and desire is to see every single person. No one falls through the cracks. Notice the language there in verse 28. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone. Nobody falls through the cracks. Nobody becomes a part of the crossing church and we just forget about them. All of a sudden they disappear and it's like, where did they go? We didn't even know that they were here. We do this so that every person would be presented fully mature in Christ. This is not, um, this is this is rather final judgment language. Just as we were unpresentable because we're not holy, blameless, and above reproach in verse twenty-two, so now we are presentable as fully mature followers of Christ. Our goal for you is maturity in Christ. Our goal for you is not happiness. Our goal for you is not that you would like everything that we do. And just, yay, let's do that again. That was real sacrificial and hard. Our goal is maturity. What we want for you, for each other, for everyone is maturity in Christ. Now, this is not sinless perfection. It's not what this is saying. Anytime you see that word perfection in Scripture, it's not talking about sinlessness. As one commentator put it, the word for maturity or perfection means this, complete and undivided way in which a person with all one's positive and negative attributes is oriented toward God and toward Christ. Maturity of perfection is the complete undivided way in which a person with all their positive and negative attributes is oriented toward God or toward Christ. And so when you get it right, you see that the reason you got it right is because of Christ in you. I can't take credit for this. It's the grace of God working through me. And when you get it wrong, not if, when you get it wrong and you sin, you run to Christ for forgiveness and repentance and more belief in the gospel. And when you fail, it's Christ who forgives you and loves you and makes you righteous in God's sight and so you don't sink into shame or fear or self-loathing. 
that is in your success, in your failures, you're oriented towards Christ. That is Christian maturity. Wholehearted, all of life orientation to Christ. And guys, more than anything else, that's what we desire. That's why we're set up the way we're set up. We don't believe that this can happen just by you showing up and going through a bunch of systems and programs and services and checking the box. We believe that, that we're set up to do that because we've got to do life with each other. We've got to know each other. We've got to be known by each other. We've got to be on mission together. We've got to see each other, not all pretty and shined up on Sunday morning. We've got to see each other uh, griping and complaining on Monday morning in the nitty-gritty of life. We've got to see each other with our spouses and not when we can put on a show here, but when we can have disagreements and arguments in our homes or going out to eat or having to deal with the kids. Blaming each other, you know, exactly like that because it's your side of the family and that kind of stuff. We've got to see all that so that we can help each other, orient each other toward Christ so that we can be fully mature in Christ. So being a part of DNA and missional communities are essential to do that, to see that happen. We have zero desire to fill this building up on Sundays and feel good about what we're doing because the building is full. No thanks. Not interested. That's not what we're signing up for. We want to know if you're full. If you're full of Jesus. Hearts full of Jesus, minds full of Jesus, desires, hopes, and joys full of Jesus. And so this is why we, we do what we do. This is why we work hard at it. Verse 29, third thing. We work hard at it as Paul worked hard at it. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. I, just, I love this guy, Paul. Nobody, it's probably nobody who ever worked harder than Paul uh, nobody who suffered more than Paul for the sake of Christ. And he saw it all as something that Christ allowed and enabled. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. No one worked harder than me, but it was all Christ. All of us preach a gospel. All of us preach a gospel. All of us give our energy, our effort, our resources to someone or something. It's not if your life proclaims a message, it's what, does, what is the message that your life proclaims. And we'll get more into Paul's laboring and striving next week, but see that Christ empowers us for the calling He gives us. Work is good, and in the work we do for Christ, there is an empowering that comes so that you know that it's His grace. That it's His grace. It's not just my energy and effort. So coming back to the question I left earlier, how can Paul, how can we suffer, work hard proclaiming Christ? How can we do all that we're called to do and do it with joy? Like he said at the very beginning of verse 24, now I rejoice. How is that possible? And understand, of course, that when I say joy, I'm not talking about a happy, clappy, smile on your face, walking with a bounce from your step all the time. That's not what we're talking about, joy. Joy is not momentary. It's not just being happy. Joy is deep gladness, a deep settledness, a deep rest, not dependent on circumstances that work out in your favor, but a deep rest and confident hope in someone who transcends our circumstances. That is joy. That is hope. Being a follower of Christ is not a call to grind it out, grunt it out, in misery, joyless devotion, emotionless service. 
It's not what God's created us for. Like we're a bunch of uh, puddle glums walking through life in a silver chair, just grinding our way through, making it happen. Misery, 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 misery. The Old Testament actually says to serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. We're created for joy, to enjoy God more than anyone or anything else. That's, that's what He's made us for. So like last night we were eating uh, tacos or some Mexican food and we were, our girls were wanting to watch the show that they love, love to watch, Once Upon a Time. And uh, they were really excited about this next episode. Like I had, yesterday was a day where half the day was rest and hang out with the family and half the day was work. And so like even in the afternoon, can we help you dad get the work done so that we can watch this episode? I'm like, what? Okay, sure. And so as we sit down, we're about to watch this thing that that's really grabbed their heart and their emotions, are really excited about it. We're about to eat good food that's really grabbing my heart and my emotions. I'm really excited about it. We just stop to say, thank you, Jesus. You are better than once upon a time. You are better and more satisfying than Mexican food. I mean, all that's good and to be enjoyed, but don't let it in there. Lead it to the giver of this good gift, the giver of God's grace that lets us enjoy these things and see His story in all of these things. That's how God has wired us. But we have to continually fight to see that, to believe that, and most of all, to experience that. And so how does that happen no matter what? It happens because of the center of this passage. Christ, the source of joy, is in you. It's the only way it happens. It cannot come from something you produce. It has to come outside of yourself something that Christ gives you because Christ has come to live in you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was Christ who came into the city on Palm Sunday. Who was welcomed by the people with Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The worship that He is going to get for all of eternity, the worship that He deserved throughout His ministry, now He's getting it. The people are giving it to Him. Jesus, who was tempted in every way like we were, no doubt the temptation went through his mind. Let's just end it right here. This is what I, this is what I deserve. This is what I'm, I'm due because I'm the king of the universe. And they're, they're finally giving me that. But, but he knew he couldn't. So he knew he had to come that week. And he knew he had to go through what he went through. He knew he had to... Um, spend time alone with his disciples, and he had to agonize with his father in the garden, and that he had to be betrayed by one of his twelve disciples, and he had to be arrested and put before these hypocrites and these illegal trials all night long. Should should never happen if they follow the law of the land. You don't have trials in the middle of the night. The whole thing was a sham. And he had he had to go through that. He knew that he had to have a purple robe put on his back. He had to be whipped and scourged and flogged with the cat of nine tails. He had to be spit on. He had to be bruised. He had to have his beard ripped out. He had to have thorns placed down into his skull. He had to be mocked and ridiculed, saying, oh, you're the king of the Jews, ha, 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 joke, joke, joke. You're just a scum prisoner like everybody else. He knew that he, he, knew that he had to climb on the cross willingly. Nobody put him there. He climbed there. Because at any moment, he could have called 12,000 legions of angels, and it ended it. Like everybody's dead, over. He had to go through all of that. Not just to purchase our redemption, to reconcile us back to God, 
But there was something else. There was something else driving Jesus. And we see it in Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was driven by joy and love and mercy and grace, but he's also driven by joy. And now that same Jesus lives inside of us. So you see him saying things like John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then a few verses later he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We have the hope of joy through suffering, through hard work, through toil, through labor, through everything we're called and created to experience because we have Christ. We lose joy when our eyes are no longer on Christ and they're on our circumstances and they're on ourselves. We lose joy. It's looking again to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that joy returns. Believing in Christ, trusting in Christ, and the hope that He gives us through the gospel. And so whatever you're struggling with in life to have joy, wherever you're most tempted to have your joy stolen from you, see that Christ is in you. Unless, of course, unless, of course, He's not. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. He is certainly due the worship, the songs, the prayers, the giving that we're doing today. He is certainly due that. He is due so much more. He, He paid it all, all to Him. I owe, we owe, the entire universe owes because who He is and what He's done is so mind blowing. Thank you that not only now can we sing, but for the rest of our lives we can sing and enjoy Christ for all of eternity. We're going to be able to sing and enjoy Christ. He is deserving of it and so much more. Father, I pray that the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory would settle deeply on the hearts of everyone in this room. Everyone who's a part of the Crossing Church. God, I pray for that throughout our city this morning. As worship services are going on right now, That the reality of Christ, the presence of Christ would settle deeply in the hearts of all who know you and who follow you. Who have Christ in them, the hope of glory. That it would drive worship and devotion and love and enjoyment that we've never experienced before. In greater and greater measure, God. We want to be people that are just caught up in the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of, of being your people. But God, I also pray, I pray for conviction for those who don't have Christ, that the Holy Spirit would speak and they would see their need of Christ and believe and trust in Christ. And Father, I pray for encouragement and comfort for those here who are walking through such difficult things and times that it is hard to see Christ. That we would love them enough that we would share life with them in such a way that we could preach Christ to them. And that you would open their eyes again and help them to see the hope of glory. God, help us to respond well today for your, for your glory, for your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.